So, KT just introduced me as an international speaker. Okay, even worse. <laughs> um, I think two of the countries you listed were the Bahamas and Mexico. Mexico was my honeymoon, and Bahamas was a vacation I did when I was like seven. So, <laughs> I wouldn't. I, I've, I'm kind of like the whitest person you may know. So I wouldn't call myself an international speaker, but. I want to start off by saying good morning. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, GAC family. I also just wanted to say how thankful I am to be able to speak before all of you. It's such a privilege. It's been such a blessing for Lauren and I to be a part of the GAC family over the past four years. And all of you have been such a large part of our lives and our growth, and we're super thankful for you. I actually remember when I first got to Emmaus, um, I was talking to Lindsay about visiting churches, and Lindsay invited me to come to GAC. <laughs> so I asked her, you should send me, I told her you should send me the address. Um, so I remember I was going with Connor, Connor Ferguson. So Connor Ferguson put the, ad- we put the address in our phone. Um, and we end up at some random person's house. And we're like, okay, this can't be right. This can't be the Great Adventure Church. But sure enough, that's where the Great Adventure Church was meeting, at Mama Jay's house. And we sat down in Mama Jay's house. And I remember Mark, he was handing out slides. He handed out sli- his PowerPoint slides describing any, for the, for his message, he described what the Great Adventure family was. Um, and I remember right after that, Connor and I getting back in his van. And right away, we like looked at each other and said, we want to be a part of this family after visiting several churches. So um, we're very blessed to be a part of this family. And I'm so excited um, just for the privilege that we've had to be a part of Joel, Abriel, Lauren and I to be a part of the Preachers Club. Um, we're super thankful for Joel and Joe for discipling us and really trying to see us grow and help us grow in our gifting. And looking back now, especially being a part of this family over the past four years, it's really easy um, for me to cherish that decision. And these past few weeks, we've been going through the book of Philippians. Um, two, weeks o- two weeks ago, we got to hear Joel Carter introduce to us the book, and he introduced to us also the idea of Paul's intimate relationship with the Philippians. It's so clear that Paul in his letter has such an intimate relation with, relationship with the Philippian church. And then also Joel was talking to us about how Paul was encouraging them, encouraging them to continue to abound in love and mature in their Christian living. And then last week we got to hear Joel Caravilla. He shared about how Paul's life was an example of gospel-centered living that shined in the midst of his vast sufferings. And this week, this week we get to turn to verses 19 to 30. And we're going to continue to see Paul's example of what a Christian's heart, mind, and life should look like. So first, let's just start off by reading the passage. We're actually going to start with the second part of verse 18. So Philippians 1, starting in the second part of verse 18. Paul starts by saying, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ... This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, um, we just thank you so much for your word and that we have the blessing and the privilege to, to study this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. And I pray, God, that you would just guide this time, that your spirit would be speaking and working in your spirit alone, and that your spirit would be speaking through me, God, and that truth alone would be said. And anything that's not true would just be stopped, um, and that everyone who's listening, that they would forget it, and that it wouldn't remain on their hearts. But everything that is true, God, I pray that it would convict us, and that our lives would be changed. I pray so in Jesus' name. Amen. To start off, I just wanted to share with all of you the story of my dad, actually. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, my dad took his own life when I was 13 years old. Um, this is obviously a sad story, and it, it's a tragic story. But I would just like to encourage you in saying that the Lord has really redeemed that situation um, and, and has changed my life and my brother's lives in amazing ways and even drawn us closer to him because of it. And I don't have time to talk about all of that, but if you want to, I'd love to talk to you more about it sometime. But the reason I wanted to share about my dad wasn't to just spark an emotional response, but because I couldn't help but think of him when I read this passage. See, my dad was a man throughout his, who throughout his life was always searching for joy. Even from the time he was young, he found himself being very successful in business. Um, he had money and possession, more money and possessions than he ever could have asked for. He owned multiple houses. He had multiple cars. He owned a boat. Everything that the world tells us we need to be satisfied. But all of these things still weren't enough to fill the void that he had in his heart. When success and money weren't enough, he looked to sex and having as many women as possible in order to just have joy. But even these pleasures proved to be fleeting and temporary. Then once he met my mom, he decided to get married um, and to start a family. But even something as beautiful as marriage... Something as beautiful as starting a family wasn't enough to fill the spiritual void that he had. He eventually left my mom and be, became addicted to the often last resort for people like this, which is drugs. But even something as chemically as powerful as drugs couldn't last for more than just a short while. After he finally realized that this world that he was living in couldn't offer the satisfaction he was looking for, he felt as if, as if he was only left with two choices— to continue on in this suffering, or to die. And hearing this story, we all know what my dad was missing. I know what my dad was missing. My dad was missing Christ, and he never heard that message. My dad was missing Christ because we know that the fullness of joy, the fullness of joy, and as Psalm 1611 says, pleasures that are forevermore are only found in the presence of God and in his presence alone. And true satisfaction is only found in Jesus. But the reason that I thought about my dad in relation to this passage that we just read was because of the absolute contrast that I saw between his motivations, between his hearts, between his heart, between his values, and between his living in comparison to that of Paul's when Paul faced a similar choice. In this passage, we see Paul, who to many 
and probably my dad would have thought so too, seems like he has his priorities completely upside down. We see that in this passage, Paul finds the utmost joy in a life of suffering. A life filled with suffering, Paul finds the utmost joy. And then he says that that perfect joy is completed when he dies. So death is the completion of that joy. And we hear that and we're like, that's crazy in our flesh. That makes no sense to us. To an unbeliever, it definitely doesn't make any sense. And our world doesn't want us to think this way. Paul's way of life just radically opposes our natural human tendencies to preserve ourselves. We want to preserve ourselves and we want to preserve comfort by any means necessary. But he claims that this kind of life, this kind of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. So I hope by the end of this message, it will be clear to all of you that Paul's selfless heart, his manner of life, and the joy that he finds in suffering are values we should cherish and replicate in our own lives. So at the beginning of this passage, the second part of verse 18, we see Paul laying out for us what he values in his heart. The passage begins with Paul saying, yes, and I will rejoice. Remember Paul's situation. We talked about it over the last couple weeks. Paul here is in prison in Rome, and he's even being afflicted by his own brothers in Christ who are seeking to bring him shame in the midst of his imprisonment, as we heard last week from Joel. All while waiting to possibly even be executed at the hand of Caesar, yet he rejoices. He rejoices still. But why? Why does Paul rejoice when it seems like he totally had every excuse to give up? To no longer rejoice, to be sad, to be angry, to be upset. He still rejoices. Why? How is that possible? But he rejoices because of verse 19. In verse 19, we see that word for. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul says in verse 19 that through the Spirit and the prayers of the Philippians, he's going to be delivered. But the question here is, delivered from what? And... Your first inclination might be to think he's talking about being delivered from his imprisonment or maybe even being delivered from a painless death or or, or a painful death or being delivered from execution. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. Later in the passage, as, as we just read, we clearly see that Paul isn't sure whether he's even going to live or die. So he must be talking about some other form of deliverance. I believe that the deliverance that Paul is talking about in this passage is the deliverance from shame. A deliverance from the shame that some are going to experience, some believers will experience at the judgment seat of Christ. Remember that in the section, um, the first section of the letter that Joel Carter spoke on, there were two references to the day of Christ. And this, these were, these mentions of the day of Christ were referencing this judgment seat. And the theme, this theme of, uh, the judgment seat is also clear through a lot of, also found throughout a lot of Paul's writings. Another example is found in um, his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And you guys can turn with me there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 13, we get this kind of like key, it's a keyhole view of the judgment seat of Christ and what that's going to look like. Starting in verse 13, it says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. So each one's work, what everyone has done in this, every believer has done in their life will be made known for the day will disclose it, the day of the judgment seat where we go before Christ, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, 
but only as through fire. So this moment, this event that we're all going to experience as believers where we go before the judgment seat of Christ, um, I just want to clarify that this judgment is not, that is mentioned in these sections of Scripture, is not a judgment of salvation. This judgment is only for believers. So only believers will experience this judgment. And it's for believers whose salvation is totally um, secure. This judgment we're talking about is the judgment of each believer's life on this earth. What work did we do? We see that each one's work will become manifest in verse 13. And then it says that each work will be tested. And what that, and we have this, this, um, example of fire. Each work, imagine your work being placed in front of you when you're with Christ. And then it's lit on fire. Everything that survives is everything that was done out of motivation for the exaltation of Christ. Everything that was done, done that honored Jesus and made his name great. Everything that wasn't done out of selfish motivation, that's what will remain. And everything that either we didn't do or was out of negative or selfish ambition will be burned up. And someday we are all going to have this experience. We're all going to go before Christ and he's going to judge us and judge whether or not he was pleased with our life on this earth. This passage in Corinthians shows us the two outcomes. And like I said, there are those who are going to suffer loss and there are those who are going to receive a reward. This loss is both referencing the loss of that reward that we're talking about, um, but it's also referencing the shame, the shame that some are going to experience. Just imagine going before your Savior, Savior after all these years on earth, going before him face to face and experiencing shame before him because you weren't working for him in your life. Imagine how awful that moment would be. That would be a moment of loss for me. I would have, I would feel like I've lost something. So we go back to verse 20 in um, Philippians chapter 1, back to our passage this morning. Paul says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. In this verse, it's clear that Paul is hoping he will not at all be ashamed before Christ. And all of us should share the same heart. Just imagine, like I said, that glorious moment where we get to go before Jesus and experiencing shame. We should not seek that. We should seek those oh-so-beautiful words where Christ would say to us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And we should hope for that reward because of what we've done on this earth. But how do we avoid this shame? And Paul actually gives us the answer to that question here in verse 20. He says that with full courage, but with full courage. Courage is needed. It's going to take courage to do this. This life isn't easy. It can be very difficult at times, but the Lord is with us. He also says that Christ must be honored through his body by his death or through his continued life. So Christ must be honored to avoid this shame. And then he also owes this deliverance to the prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Holy Spirit working through him. So we clearly see that Paul's goal isn't release. His goal isn't a painless death but to continue to live in a way that will cause him to experience joy in that moment rather than shame on the day he comes before his Savior. But even with this eternal mindset, Paul still considers his situation. He feels as if now, as he's in jail, he only has two options before him. He's either going to continue to live on this earth or he's going to die at the hand of Caesar. And then he sums up his values. He sums up what he's thinking in verse 21. Verse 21 says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But what does this verse mean? I don't think Paul was just giving us a short, 
easy memory verse so that we could remember it. I think there's so much more meaning in this verse. I think he's summing up his values and what he believes, what's truly in his heart. The second part of this verse, in my opinion, is more clear than the first. It says, to die is gain. To die is gain because we know that when we die, we will gain Christ. We know that we as believers will enter into the presence of God when we die. And this is something that Paul, just like all of us, should desire. He desired this. But he also says in the first part of the verse, to live is Christ. This is the more confusing, in my opinion, of the two statements. But I believe Paul is saying to keep living on earth means the continuation of his ministry among the Philippians. As we see in verse 22, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He is saying that to choose to live would be similar to the decision Christ made when he came to this earth to live among us. He says to live is Christ. See, Christ chose to come to our vile, sin-filled world and give his life as a ransom rather than continue to live in the eternal splendor of the presence of God in heaven. That's amazing. Hence, to live as Christ means that a sacrifice is being made, just like Jesus sacrificed the splendor of being in the presence of his Father. And Paul also knows that his work is not done. Even though to choose to die is far better, as Paul describes in verse 23, he says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But he says that to remain in the flesh is more necessary, more necessary for the well-being of the Philippians, because dying would bring his ministry among them to an end. And I, as I read this, just cannot help but be blown away by the selflessness of Paul, how selfless his heart is in making this decision. Obviously, we know that the choice here, the actual outcome, isn't Paul's, it's God's. But if he could, he said he would choose rather to continue on this earth than to be with his Savior. Because he sees it, he sees his continued living and and work among the Philippians as in their best interest, in the best interest of those who he loves. That truly is sacrificial love. That's why for Paul, to live is Christ. And I have a question for all of us. Would we make this same decision? Would we make the same decision if we were faced with the same dilemma? If you knew that you could either choose the presence of God or to remain working among the Gak family, what would you choose? I hope that we can all be as passionate about Paul as the... I I hope that we can all be as passionate as Paul about the Gak family as he was about the Philippian church because to do so would be Christ for to live among and selflessly serve the great adventure church is Christ one commentator says um, he reminds us he, he reminds us that in doing this living this way we must deny ourselves he says we must put the converts of the gospel at the center of our principled self-denial and I believe when he says this he says this because sometimes we deny ourselves selfishly That sounds kind of weird. sounds like an oxymoron, but we deny ourselves selfishly. Sometimes we deny ourselves for the sort of spiritual high that we receive from it. But we ought to seek a self-denial that is motivated by the spiritual good of others, just like Paul is doing here. Especially the good of our church, as we see with Paul and the Philippian church. And after thinking about all of these things, I would just like us to read through this section of the passage one more time with this new idea, these new ideas of what it means 
to live to live as Christ and to die as gain. Let's just read through it one more time. Verses 21 to 26. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But, but, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. People who truly believe these words, people who truly live by these words cannot be stopped. There is no end to their words of praise. There is no end to their Christ-centered living. The only way to hush them is death. And even in doing so, the one who punishes them with death has lost the battle because they have gained something even greater, the fullness of joy that is found in the presence of Christ. As I was preparing, I was reading a commentary, and this commentary shared a story about a missionary named John Payton. I don't know if you guys have heard this story. John Payton was a missionary to the South Sea Islands. And as he was preparing to go to the South Sea Islands, he shared with his church what the Lord um, was showing him and what the Lord was burdening in his heart with these people. And there's an old man in his assembly named Mr. Dixon. And Mr. Dixon comes up to John Payton and says, You will be eaten by cannibals, he warned him. Payton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own body is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. And I think this this is obvious like a little mic drop roast that he gave him. But I think that it, it really shows an amazing point. That the gospel must be put first in our lives, no matter the outcome, no matter the consequences. Just as C.T. Studd once said, I know you guys have probably heard this quote before. He says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We only have one life on this earth. And this life is much shorter than I think we even imagine. And only what we do for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, will remain. And Paul continues here. He continues to encourage us, encourage us to live with the gospel central in our lives. And the final section of our passage this morning, starting in verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may have hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side, For the faith of the gospel. Paul calls the Philippians to let their manners of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The literal meaning of the Greek in this phrase, and I'm not sharing the Greek because I'm an expert in Greek by any means. I'm only sharing it because I can read and it was in my commentary. But I thought it was so interesting. The literal meaning of the Greek in the phrase, let your manner of life, in verse 27, here means to behave as citizens. So the verse can also be read as, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I love it. I love that literal interpretation of the verse because of the idea presented of citizenship. 
This is a word that we'll see Paul use later in the letter as we continue preaching through it. Um, but just some context for the, for the church in Philippi. See, Philippi was a city, a Roman city. Being a part of a Roman city brought the Philippians Roman citizenship, which granted them with many privileges due to the Roman Empire being the greatest empire in the world at the time. It would have been so, so easy for the Philippians to completely identify with Rome, and they would receive a bunch of privileges as a result of it. And it would have been so easy for them to boast this Roman citizenship that they had because of the power that came with it. But Paul calls them to something greater here. He calls them to something greater than even the empire of Rome. Paul here is telling the Philippians that now in Christ they are called to a citizenship that surpasses all political affiliations, all national affiliations, all cultural affiliations that they could try to align to. This citizenship is a heavenly citizenship. The new existence that we are all given in Christ as believers is the greatest privilege that we could ever imagine because we now know, we now know that our home is not on this earth, but resides in the presence of God. So Paul encourages them. He encourages them as ambassadors and citizens of heaven to live as such by conforming to the image of Christ himself and living in a manner worthy of it. Then Paul goes on to say, um, he says in this same verse, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Paul hopes to hear that the Philippians are continuing on in their faith with integrity. He says, whether I see you or I'm absent. Integrity means that their living would continue to honor Christ even if Paul wasn't there watching over them. Even if no one was looking, their living would continue to honor Christ. And even more important than integrity before Paul is integrity before the Lord who sees and knows all things. Because I feel like oftentimes we forget. We forget that nothing, nothing at all is secret to our Lord. Our God is not ignorant when it comes to sin and idleness in our lives. He not only sees it, but he's displeased by it when he sees it. And even in the midst of Christ's physical absence on this earth, he still sees all that we do, all that we do. Knowing this, we should seek to live lives of integrity that would be pleasing to him, especially as we look forward to that day, that day where we're going to go before him face to face at the judgment seat. And while I was preparing this week and thinking about this idea of integrity, it made me think about a man um, who, from my old church who took me under his wing after my dad passed away. This man's name is Mr. Stan. Um, Mr. Stan was an older man, or is an older man. Um, he's a plumber. He actually owns his own plumbing company. But before Mr. Stan started his own plumbing company, he started, he started working for a bigger plumbing company. And he had a lot of co-workers that were also plumbers. So he would work alongside people. And when he worked for this company, he noticed that many of the other plumbers would only partly fix issues for their clients so that they would continue to need their services and pay for their services and have to come, keep coming back to them. And they could get away with this easily because plumbing obviously is a very dirty and messy job, something that a client doesn't even want to look at or be there for. So they were left alone to do their work, and seemingly they were in secret. So they could easily tamper with things. They could easily tamper with things, and they would. This obviously outraged Mr. Stan, who is a believer, which made him leave to begin his own company, and he actually decided to call it Integrity Plumbing. Integrity Plumbing, which is kind of... A joke, but also the meaning behind it, behind it is much more. 
Mr. Stan now goes on to diligently serve his clients, even if they aren't watching, even if they aren't watching, because he knows, he knows that his Lord is always watching him. And now, even when his clients ask him, why did you call your plumbing company Integrity Plumbing, which especially was a bigger deal back then, because phone books were a big deal, and when you needed a plumber, you went to the phone book, and you would want to name your something like your company something like AAA Plumbing, so you'd be the first thing in the phone book. But he named it Integrity. So they'd ask him, why would you name it Integrity Plumbing? But he uses this opportunity to share the gospel. He uses the opportunity to share the gospel with his clients, and has been serving the Lord faithfully all these years, even as a plumber. This is the type of integrity that Paul is encouraging the Philippians to have in their own lives. An integrity and way of living that not only pleases Paul, but pleases Christ by being worthy of his gospel message. And this life is one that we don't live alone, but together. Together, as Paul makes it clear to us in the second half of the verse of tw- second half of verse 27. And in the second half, he says um, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. As we think about this idea of worthy living with integrity, we should recognize that we are to seek this together, not alone. We are are to seek this as a church family. Remember, Paul is not writing to an individual. Even though he is slightly writing to each person individually, he is writing to a church as a whole, a whole body, and encouraging them to be in one mind and one spirit, striving side by side together. And we are be, we are called in the same way to be, to take this united front and our life, um, live for our Savior. And directly after this, um, in verse 28, after this call that we see, Paul drops another confusing, confusing verse in my opinion. Verse 28 says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The first time I read that, I was super confused. What does he mean, not frightened in anything by your opponents? What does he mean that this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God? What do these words mean? But it seems as if the Philippians had pagan neighbors and authorities opposing their growth as a body, but also opposing the growth and the progression of the gospel. This opposition was most likely persecution and suffering that they were facing as a result of their commitment to Christ. But Paul says that the fact that they are even being opposed, the fact that they are even being persecuted is a sign to them, a sign to them of their salvation. What this has to mean is that genuine faith and godly living brings suffering. Genuine faith and genuine lives lived for Christ must bring suffering. Paul here doesn't describe suffering as if it's some rare outcome of a life lived for Christ, but as something to be accept, expected and also something to even look forward to. Suffering, to look forward to it, to expect it. As we were talking about this idea in Preacher's Club on Thursday, Joel Curavilla reminded me of a verse he reminded me of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. You don't have to turn there. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Indeed, all who live, who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Not may be persecuted, not could be persecuted, but will be persecuted. 
So then we can infer that suffering isn't something to be avoided, but it's actually a sign of genuine faith. It's a sign of godly living. But do we consider it that way? Do we consider us, do we consider suffering as a privilege that we owe God special thanks for? Or do we think of it as something that we need to avoid at all costs? By any means necessary, I don't want to suffer. I want to be comfortable. I want to preserve my life. I look at the lives of not just Paul, but all the apostles in Acts. Um, I was reading through Acts as well. Um, and the apostles surely considered their suffering as a privilege, a privilege from God. Let's turn to Acts chapter 5 really quickly. I think this is an awesome example of this, of their heart, of the apostles' heart. Acts chapter 5. See, in this passage, uh, the apostles have just been going down the streets and preaching the gospel boldly. They've been preaching in the name of Christ. And then because of this, because of this preaching, because of the way that they're doing these things, they've been brought before a council. And this council is charging them. They're charging them, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. You must stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they're threatening punishment. They're threatening uh, jail time. They're threatening execution. But the apostles respond in verse 29. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. And as this council continues and the discussion continues, the council actually chooses not to kill the apostles. But they did beat them. They did beat the apostles before letting them go. And then in verse 41... Verse 41, I love this verse so much. After they were beaten, like I said, after they were beaten, they left the presence of the council rejoicing, bruised up, bloodied, rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy, counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. In verse 42, did it stop? No, it didn't stop. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Many nowadays would sadly call this way of thinking and living as radical. But if it is radical, then I think we should all be a little bit more radical in our lives and in our walk with Jesus. How amazing would it be to see the Great Adventure Church be counted worthy enough to suffer for the sake of Christ in Dubuque, Iowa? Wouldn't that be so amazing for us to be counted worthy enough to suffer for his sake in our city, just like the apostles were? Let's jump back to Philippians chapter 1. Let's read verses 29 through 30 again. For it has been granted to you, for it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. As we come to an end of this message and this passage, I would just like to remind all of you that of the example that we see in Paul. We see the ultimate deliverance he seeks is from shame at the judgment seat, not from his situations in life, not from the suffering. His goal is a Christ-honoring life, not one that avoids the shame of others who are around him. His desires to live and die are both pure, but his decision to stay on this earth is selfless. He tells us that if we suffer for the sake of Christ, that our faith is genuine and our way of life is godly. 
And he ultimately encourages us to live as citizens of heaven worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is such an amazing letter. It's such an amazing letter that we have the privilege of studying, isn't it? Freely we get to study this. One that I wish my dad would have read before he made his decision. And one that I'm glad we all get to read and be changed by this morning. And the beautiful part, the beautiful part of it all, is that these are truths that we are not only to abide in personally, but collectively as a church, as we seek to strive side by side with the same mind and same spirit among us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you so much for this, for your word. I thank you for who you are and that you are good and that you have counted us worthy enough to live in this way. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be bold, to be radical, for our living to not make sense to the world, for us to look differently than unbelievers. I pray that we would look more like the apostles in our living and even more like Jesus and be more and more conformed to his image and that we would do so as a church, collectively, as a family. Thank you once again for this time and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.